Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. Cecilia, are you ready to have your mind blown? Or maybe if you're ready to have your pants scared off you because we're going into... What some might have thought is very Star Trek-like once oh, upon a time. science fiction, oh, little, for sure. A little bit um, Jetsons. Yeah. <laughs> Jetsons, is that what they were I called? wish I could do that noise. <laughs> Meet George Jetson. That one. Today we're talking about DNA. What does your DNA say about you and what is going to happen in your life health-wise? I was going to say wealth-wise. That would be nice if you could find out that well, as maybe. well. Well, it could be connected. We're talking about the future <laughs> of DNA testing, you know, what we, where we're headed with all of this. Anyway, there's lots to absorb, so maybe we should just actually get straight into it. Um, I'm Sharon Palmer. I'm CEO of a, a company called iDNA Health. So we're uh, an integrated clinic that specialises in using genetics to deliver personalised health to people. So when we decided to do this podcast and, and feature you as a, a guest, it was very interesting because I'm obviously in the world of health and I'm wildly invested and intrigued and always motivated by looking at our genetics and mm-hmm. our DNA. And I was very excited. Cecilia says to me yesterday, what? I don't want people having my DNA. And I was like, <laughs> my information about my DNA. And I was, I was like, oh, I've never thought about that before. Mm. So let's talk about that because I think that's important to understand. And I want you to explain at some point, you know, what the testing is and how how it works. But is this safe for us to be doing? It is safe for you to be doing. So there's, there's lots of, whenever you order up any genetic testing, it doesn't matter from what company that you're doing that from, is there's lots of um, privacy clauses in there. Um, what you need to be careful of is, you know, places like um, companies like 23 and Ancestry um, release what's called a raw data file and that's available to you and you can do whatever you want with that and you know people are getting online and they're seeing these kind of genetic based services and it says you know upload your raw data file it might cost you a small amount of money or it might be for free and people are are willingly handing their DNA over to everyone. And I say to them, did you even bother to read the terms of service or your privacy clauses? Most people don't. So I say, you know, be be careful with who gets your genetic data, but most people are their own worst enemy. Is they're just simply putting, because they think, oh, someone's going to tell me something really interesting about this, and they haven't actually thought of what they've done. We have really stringent guidelines in in clinic about what we can do. Um, We have people's raw data files, but we get people to authorise. We generate raw, um, we take that data and we make it into personalised reports. And our patients have to authorise that we do that on their behalf. So even though we have their raw data, they get to determine what information we pull out and report to them. So, yeah, just be mindful of what you do with your genetic data. Well, this is the thing because I said to Nat, really, when you boil it down, that is the essence of who you are. And if you're happy to pass over the information about who you are, where you're from, what you're susceptible to genetically, like all of that information... 
that you've got nothing else. So I find it fascinating that people just don't even think twice about I it. I didn't think twice. Hmm. I did a 23andMe test. I did the whole kit and caboodle. I wanted to see where all the people were and now I'm like, hmm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you're, you're safe there. You know, you know, you're not going, your data's not going to be kind of hijacked, but what a lot of people are doing is they're taking that 23andMe test that they've had they're downloading their raw data file and then they're giving it away to other people. It's not 23andMe doing that. And what you need to be mindful of is that whatever you're giving away is, is you know, it's de-identified so that it can't come back to you. So, yeah, when people have got their genetic data, they need to be really mindful of what they're doing. But we're living in an age where, you know, people give away their privacy on lots and lots of levels. Yeah, that's really <laughs> but, true. But it's also, it's such a valuable tool. So if we're looking at it from a health perspective, it will be the single biggest advantage we've ever had in understanding and managing our health. We want to use this genetic data, but we want to do it in a manner that um, you know, doesn't put us at risk in, in any way. You know, even though there may be genes that identify risk, they are modified by the environment. So it's not just a gene telling you you're going to get this, it's a gene telling you you've got a, a risk factor there. And from an environmental diet lifestyle point of view, what can you do to help mitigate that risk? So, you know, insurance companies have tried to take that data and kind of predict, but it falls over because it is this gene environment interaction. And that's the power when you use your genetic data is that you can see potentially where some of those risks are and you can begin to put things into play that help to mitigate that risk. So it becomes a really powerful tool. So there's things that you would do with certain genetic mutations that if you didn't know you had it, you wouldn't know that you would need to do those things. You know, it takes us down this pathway of personalised health and into preventive predictive health care. Not waiting until you get sick and then trying to manage your symptoms, but knowing 10, 20 years um, in front of that what's going to happen. And this is where your own family history and your family medical history can give you huge insight because so much of what's going wrong with our health has a genetic underpinning. How does someone test? Let's start at the beginning. They decide they want to do some genetic testing, then what? So the first thing is you want to decide um, first um, who you're going to do it with and that will be determined often by what's available to you but also largely by cost. So here at the clinic we test tend to prefer to work with the 23 and Ancestry raw data files because they give you the most extensive amount of raw data and they give it to you for very little money. So um, if you go online, you can see 23andMe offer a genetic test for 99 US dollars but you get close to 700,000 genes. Wow. Which is really extensive. Now, if you did a similar test in Australia, so there's a, there's a number of companies in Australia offering genetic testing, but they're very small panels. They have their limitations um, at a clinic level. So they only report on a small number of mutations. And so there's only certain information you can get out of it. But you will pay more for 100 or 150 SNPs than you will pay for 700,000. So if you're going to look at your genetics, you need an extensive panel in order to be able to look broadly based on what your health concerns or your health are. 700,000 bits of information is just a bit mind-blowing though. So from your perspective as a practitioner, how do you work out which parts of that 700,000 bits of data 
are most useful. It is. And if you printed out your raw data file, it would be 9,000 pages <laughs> of oh, wow. numbers. Oh, I like reading things off paper, though. That's a bit disappointing. You would say your RS4880 is, is a GG genotype. And <laughs> you, if you looked at that, it would just be gobbledygook. And it's actually gobbledygook for everyone until you actually go in and understand what that genetic mutation is telling you. We've been using genetics at a clinical level for 10 years. As everyone else is just getting into this space and kind of skimming across the, the surface. But we generate templates. So let's say you wanted to know if you were gluten intolerant. Now, gluten intolerance is a genetic condition. You either are or you aren't. And other than developing celiac disease, the only way you will definitively know if you're gluten intolerant is to look genetically. Now, there are a number of genes that will tell you that you are gluten intolerant. So what we do at the clinic is we create a gluten intolerance template and we pull out of that 700,000 bits of information, we pull out the genes that will tell us whether you're gluten intolerant or not and we report on that. We don't tell you that you've just got these particular mutations. We tell you clinically what it's going to mean. So each gluten intolerance mutation will have, yes, they will all mean that you're gluten intolerant, but they will change your clinical risk because gluten intolerance mutations are actually mutations within the immune system and it opens up the door for immune dysregulation and autoimmune um, signaling. Most people who are gluten intolerant don't know. One in three people only get symptoms. And so your genetics allows you to know for certain whether you are or aren't. Your particular mutation will tell you clinically where your risk is. So you can start to do some pathology testing to check for some of these risk maskers. We know that you have to remove gluten if you have these mutations, not just for a week or for a month, but indefinitely, it just has to go. But if you don't have those mutations, removing gluten is not going to be of much value to you because you're actually not reacting to it. So when you look in the marketplace right now around gluten intolerance, it's a very confusing and muddy landscape and genetics just cuts through it and gives you definitive and defined answers. We look at that and then if we, if our patient wants to know whether they're lactose intolerant, we go out and we pull down the genes that will tell us if you're lactose intolerant. So we pull out the genetic data that is relevant to what you want to know. Our role at the clinic is to tell you where to look. So if you come in with an autoimmune condition, we're going to tell you what parts of your genetics you need to screen for to look for your risk factors. Because what you're trying to do is identify your drivers, not manage the symptoms, but understand mm. what's pushing your immune system down that autoimmune pathway and it's multifactorial. So you, you, you begin to see what you have to focus your attention on. So this is why you have to be careful about practitioners giving you very small genetic panels to work with because what they can't do is give you the broad picture of what you need to focus on. It's very interesting, but I know that there'll be some people asking, well, what's the difference between doing, say, a saliva test and testing for gluten intolerance as opposed to 
Um, and I know you've kind of explained it, but I want to ask that question anyway for someone that might be confused between that and genetic testing. The only way you can tell if you're gluten intolerant, other than having already developed celiac disease, which confirms, because you can't get celiac disease unless you have gluten intolerance mm-hmm. mutations. But there is no other test out there that will be definitive around gluten intolerance. Not your Ig. Um, not your IgG testing. Um, If you screen for antibodies, so often if people go in and do their celiac test and that comes back negative, people are often told, oh, you're not gluten intolerant because you don't have the antibodies. That is completely incorrect information. So you can be highly gluten intolerant and never develop celiac disease. Celiac disease is just one of a myriad of autoimmune diseases that are tied into those mutations. So right now as practitioners, a lot of what we've been told about how to screen for gluten intolerance is inaccurate and um, and your genetics is definitive. And so, you know, I've been in that position. I've been using um, genetics for 10 years. There has not been one aspect of health or clinical process that has not been challenged by genetics is that I've had to let go of a lot of things. I used to do a lot of salivary hormone testing. In fact, I used to run workshops for practitioners for many, many years. Don't do a single saliva hormone test for hormones anymore because what you really want to do is get to the foundational problem, which is your genetics. But it's been very, very challenging. As we bring genetics into the marketplace, we all have to have a really open mind because I've walked into my clinic and gone, well, I've just been doing that completely wrong for <laughs> the last 20 years. You know, so it is. But what what we're all after, anyone who's in the health business, whether it's a practitioner trying to look after their patients or or the, the average person looking for answers, what we want is to truly understand what are the decisions that we have to make here. And we know that one size does not fit all. Mm. So genetics just makes things very, very clear cut. We're just going to take a really quick break, but I feel like we're really just touching the surface on how this genetic testing uh, can really change the way we approach things. So we'll be back in just a second with more. We are here talking to Sharon Palmer from iDNA Health, all about how you can have personalised healthcare around the 700,000 bits of information that you can find from your DNA, which is blowing my mind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked about gluten, like, you know... As an example. As an example. But do you think that seeing so much has changed in the last 10 to 20 years in the way we approach healthcare and and there's this shift that we're looking at... um, at factors and treating the root of what's going on rather than the symptoms. Do you think there's potential that we can always go back to this information? So I guess there's a, an advantage in doing it now and your genes don't change, I'm guessing. And so, you know, in 10 years' time, if there's been more breakthroughs or what have you, you can reassess it and, and look and see, okay, this is the information that I have and now I can find that there's more that I can learn. Oh, there is. And we've got patients that, you know, what we want to know right now from their genetic data may be really different. So let's say we have a woman come in and she's in her early 20s and she's got lots of gut problems. We might go in and screen whether she's intolerant, lactose intolerant, what her secretor status is. Four or five years later, she might go, you know what, I'm ready to have a baby. And we can go in and look at the really key nutritionals 
around, you know, what are her choline requirements in pregnancy? Because we know that some women with certain genetic mutations, their requirements for choline will be three times above what the RDI is or what the expected value is. And if they don't end up getting that level of choline in, then of course choline, you know, they're going to have risk factors through their pregnancy. So we would look at what are the key nutrients for her to have a healthy pregnancy. She might postpartum um, have suddenly realised there's this autoimmune condition that's developed. So we would go in and look at her drivers. She might realise that her father has developed Alzheimer's and wants to screen for her risk of Alzheimer's. And, of course, women are more affected by Alzheimer's disease than men. Oh, I didn't know that. They are, and it is currently our number one killer of Australian women. And we know from the research that you want to go in and find out early whether you have these risk factors because it's early intervention around diet and lifestyle where you're going to be able to exert the most control. So I think what's interesting is that, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding, if I can use myself as an example, because I obviously I have it. a little boy that has you know. cystic fibrosis, so we know that, you know, genetically he has a mutation. Um, obviously my husband's a carrier, I'm a carrier, we got together and had a child and there was some research that we looked into really early on that suggested that when the mother is deficient in certain nutrients, that you are more likely to ha- for that mutation to present. So yeah. this sort of information, I think this is where it becomes particularly mm. useful is that if I had have known that, if I A, had have known I was a carrier and B, had have known that um, I wanted to fall pregnant and I tested for my levels of things like, say, selenium and there's a few other, chromium I think you mentioned before and a few other things, um, then my chances of that being presented would have been less according to the research and I found that completely fascinating and, of course, that's just one example of, I'm sure, many and as to, you know, this preconception is a, is a good discussion to have because it's the preconception care that really matters um, when, you, when, you, when you're trying to have a baby and we talk about the first, yes. you know, 100 days now we're saying, okay, for the first, prior to having or conceiving, mm. it's those, those first three to six months that really, I would say six months actually, that Set really count. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and you're completely right there because, you know, when we talk about, we know that what you do in preconception care, and we know that the egg and sperm take about 106 days to develop. So that comes back to that three to four months. One of the best things that you can hand off to your baby is healthy DNA. And you can go in and you can improve the quality of your DNA. And based on, you know, some of us are damaging our DNA more, more highly than others. Some of us don't have the genetics in order to go in and repair the damage to that DNA. You know, here at the clinic, we measure how much damage is done to people's DNA and we then go into their genetic data and we go, okay, what are the things that are putting you at risk of this damage? How would you go in and repair it? And we go in and we put protocols into play and we monitor that damage and it improves. You can write it at a DNA level, you can improve. But, you know, we're very very individual in that that risk and so especially for men and what we need to understand is the the sperm in men is very vulnerable to oxidative stress and oxidative stress is what damages the DNA and so you know women are often very proactive in preconception (laughs) care but we need to realize most men think they just need to show up on the day do their thing and that's (laughs) 
that's all that they have to bother about. And you go, take a supplement. They're like, really? But we need to know that men are contributing 50% of that DNA. And in fact, their DNA is incredibly vulnerable to oxidative stress. So both couples should work on improving that. And we know that the decisions you make in preconception care will have some of the biggest impacts on your child's health the rest of their life. So this is where when we talk about preventive predictive healthcare, your health care, your health can be manipulated before you're even conceived. And that's wow. because mum and dad can work on their DNA. I'm actually a little bit scared still about all this info like knowing this stuff. I don't know. I think I'm a little bit la la la, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to know that I've got an Alzheimer's susceptible gene. But you can or... do so much to help to make sure that your body doesn't have to go down that path. I... That's that fear-based approach that we're all uh, currently living in that, you know, it's we fear the worst because we've seen somebody that's been affected by that probably. Of course. But imagine if they had that, inf- put them, ask them if they had that information. Would they have done Well, they probably don't know because they've got Alzheimer's. But if it was something else. I think, though, the interesting part about this, put that aside about whether you, you know whether now you're susceptible to things that you didn't know you were susceptible to. Um, A friend of mine has cancer and she found out recently that there was a gene mutation in her liver. She doesn't have liver cancer, but they did a test and they found that there was this gene mutation in her liver and the oncologist was really excited, rang her and said, we found this thing, we don't know what it means, but we think it will change the way we can treat you going forward from here. And I haven't caught up with her since to see what that outcome was. Mm. I think it was actually really new and and perhaps the the doctors weren't even sure. But that takes us into a whole other area as well, right, that you can then treat people in that genetic, when you get down to that genetic level, that the disease can be treated that way as well. Oh, yes. Look, your genetics across any aspect of your health will become paramount. So certainly risk factor for diseases and all diseases will have a genetic underpinning. So you'll be able to screen and look at what those risk factors are. Let's say someone's been diagnosed with cancer and they're they recommended certain um, certain chemotherapeutic drugs. The way that you respond to that drug, the efflux pumps and how quickly it's pumped out of the cell will all be genetic. So what will happen is that your genetics will be used at every step of the way. It will be used early on to look at where your risk factors are so that you can engage in preventative health. If you're diagnosed with a disease, it will help with your active treatment. Even if you're prescribed a, a drug for depression, the way that you metabolise that drug will impact on your side effects and the efficacy of that drug. Mm. So you will see that there'll be no prescribing of prescription medication until you've actually looked at how you metabolise and respond to that drug. It will make prescription medication use safer and more effective. And so your genetics will be used at every step of the way. When you go off to your dentist, your dentist will look at your genetics related to your periodontal disease. If you go to your personal trainer, he's going to look and go, are you an endurance athlete or a power athlete? And how am I going to train you? And do you break down a lot of muscle during exercise? And we need to have you know, a longer period of rest between your training sessions. So it's all genetic data. And the person dealing with your health will look at that in a myriad of ways. But everything that you want to do will be, you'll be able to make better choices if you understand your 
the genetics behind it. And yeah, we, and I think too, you know, it raises good questions about, you know, do you want to know that data? But one of the things that we do at the clinic is we spend a lot of time speaking to our patients about genetic testing because it's about empowerment. And if you actually don't feel, if you don't understand what a genetic test is going to offer you, it's very easy to kind of think, oh, I don't want to know that genetic data. It's just going to tell me something awful. But the thing to remember is a genetic mutation, mutations change basically the way that proteins and enzymes work in the body. So that mutation says, you know, this protein isn't going to function the way that it should. If you understand the role of that protein in the body, so maybe it's to control um, the way that you utilise glucose in, in the body. And if you know that there's a problem with doing that, you begin to put changes into your diet and the way you exercise to make sure you go to, don't go down that pathway. So it's not a gene that you look at and go, well, I just, I know I've got it, but I can't do anything about it. This is about manipulating gene expression, turning genes on and off. And that gets back to that example around the cystic fibrosis. Yes, there's a there's a risk there, but it's also about what we call epigenetic change and, and, and expression of that gene. What we're trying to do is manipulate gene expression or compensate for what that, that protein can't do anymore. And that's hugely empowering because the thing to realise is those mutations are operating whether you know about them or not mm. and not knowing is actually where you where you're most at risk. But even if you look at someone like Geordie and his diagnosis, I mean, for him, I realised really early on, if we can minimise stress on every level and allow his cells to work to the best of their ability, regardless, then his health, his health is going to always be better. And so how do we do that? And I guess that when you can have this more targeted approach where you actually know exactly what the body's doing, I'm not left guessing, going, oh, okay, well, let's reduce or remove inflammatory foods. Let's expose him to, uh, you know, certain vitamins and minerals. Like I wouldn't have to guess anymore. I would just be able to say no, this you, is exactly what he needs. And when you say, you know, remove inflammatory foods, well, you know, that's very personalised. So what mm. his body is reacting to could be different to what somebody else's body is reacting to. So you can go in and go, does gluten have to go? Does lactose have to go? Yeah, um, and that's really interesting too because generally we're like, all right, well, we, most of us don't do very well with dairy, so remove it. What was really interesting with him is when I actually did put him on dairy, he thrived. It was like a different child. And I'm like, well, this goes against everything yeah. that I ever learned. And the problem is dairy has been vilified. But if you look at genetic researchers, the ability to be lactose tolerant, so you actually have to have genetic mutations to be lactase persistent through your life. But researchers call that ability to be lactose tolerant the single biggest evolutionary advantage in the human genome. So we need to be really careful about looking at dairy and saying, that's really bad for everyone. Because if you're actually lactose tolerant, you do really good things with that, with that, and and removing lactose will be to your detriment. But you, if you are intolerant, you do terrible things with that, and the outcome is different. So you've got exactly the same food group, and your genetics goes: Is this going to be a plus for me, mm. 
or is it going to be a problem for me? You can't guess. And if you guess wrong, there are consequences to removing it if you're actually tolerant. Um, Sharon, would you like to let everybody know where they can access uh, the clinic and you? Yes, we're based in Perth, but we do a lot of um, video conferencing. We actually treat people all over the, the world. We have a really good website and a knowledge centre where people can go in and, and look. Um, we're on Instagram and Facebook. People can follow us. And yes, if people are interested in this or want some further information, you know, they can contact us through email, through a contact page on our website. But I really encourage people to start going down this pathway. I, as a practitioner, know that if people come into me now and they don't want to do their genetics, I say to them, you know what, I'm largely guessing here. Mm. Because <laughs> genetics has given me some insights and I, without it, I say, I just don't well, you know. don't know. I just don't know. I don't know whether you should or you shouldn't. I don't know whether we should focus on that. Um, and it, it allows you to, to really make the decisions you need to, to make because we've made this assumption that, you know, oh, you know, if we get it wrong, it's okay. It's okay. But, you know, we're all taking a lot of supplements. Uh, in many cases, those supplements are doing you harm. They're helping some people, they're neutral in others, and they're actually harmful in a core group of people. And that's a bit confronting to know that some of the choices that we're making are actually could be doing the opposite mm. of what we thought. Mm. So interesting. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. This has been eye-opening. I know. I still feel like I've got piles of questions, but maybe they're more personalised <laughs> than for everybody to share. Well, you're just going to have to go and just test your DNA. Um, you? Wow. Okay. So you've put my mind at rest and I feel like maybe there would be a lot of advantage in finding out and definitely that stuff about the preconception. I mean, I wonder if we'll see in the future that it will become a standard thing that if you are trying to conceive and perhaps if you've had trouble conceiving that you might go down this route of DNA testing to see so that they can identify exactly what might be the holding the situation back. Oh, and look, in the future, what you'll find is that we will be DNA tested at birth. And in fact, oh. <laughs> you actually, you can actually extract the baby's DNA out of the mother. So you can actually know ahead of time what your DNA is. And we will very soon be moving over to full genome testing. So those 700,000 genes that blew your mind, yeah. there's actually 6 billion. <laughs> That's a lot of paper. <laughs> Imagine what they can tell you. Cecilia's worried about the landfills, right? That is a lot of paper. <laughs> Big thanks to Sharon Palmer from iDNA Health. You can get the information about where you find her uh, in the blurb here or if you head to our Instagram, you get all the information there. Collective The Wellness. Yes, you can. And what we would love you to do is tell us what you loved about the episode wherever you can spread the love, if it's on Instagram <laughs> or maybe it's on iTunes leaving a review, just saying. Oh, just saying, just putting it out there. I'm just putting it out there. I can see Cecilia scrolling madly. Not there are no saying. new reviews. Oh. I checked yesterday. Oh, very good. <laughs> good to check. Hey, um, but- I, I still feel like... This is, uh, maybe it's just me. I'm always a bit of a Luddite when it comes to applying myself to new technology. So perhaps this is just going to take me a little while. But mm-hmm. I do love the idea, though, that you can be preemptive with things. So I guess there's that about it. Well, if you put yourself in my shoes and I hadn't oh, yeah. known that, and if it was as simple as taking some extra supplements, like, but, not, and that's not an insurance policy, but it's less of a chance of it 
presenting. But then does it make you feel bad? No, that not you at didn't all. didn't know that? Not at all. But I oh, think probably good. when he was little maybe. Yeah. But now that he's a person, he's not a baby and yeah. he's doing really well, then no. But no. what happens if he wasn't? Well, also I guess it, it comes back to the idea that do your genes define who you are? I think that's part of the reason I'm a bit like, I don't want to, I don't want to boil my life down to 700,000 bits of information. Yeah, but it doesn't really, well, that's what she's saying as well though. You still get to then manipulate how they behave. Mm. So it's I'm not a, a definite. person. I don't know if I've got time to manipulate all my genes. You don't have to do genes. anything other than probably a little <laughs> bit of exercise and eat the right thing. Eat like a that's, few more carrots. Or work out which supplements you need and which ones you don't. Like that can be... Yeah, a, that's pretty useful. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Because how many things are you taking you probably don't need? Zero at the moment, actually, <laughs> for me. Hey, um, thank you so much for joining us mm-hmm. again in the Wellness Collective. You know where to find the rest of the episodes. But until next time, we hope that this one has left you feeling a little bit healthier, happier and better. better.